everybody welcome to from the deep end for this wonderful wednesday morning it is june the 29th thank you all for tuning in and uh spending some time with us this morning and we are thankful for your presence uh looking forward to a uh, a good day of bible study here today on digital bible study wednesday is our slowest today uh, because we do not do the connect meeting on wednesday night trying to stay away from um from uh midweek Bible studies from your local congregations. So uh, we've always tried to honor that throughout our time online. So uh, as has been our tradition, we don't uh, do our nightly stream on Wednesday, but uh, we do have from the deep end this morning. And then we have Beth Brewer uh, doing the mindful soul at two o'clock Eastern time. Uh, and do not forget her also that uh, uh, hour she does a session with a therapist for just the subscribers to the uh, digital Bible study service. Uh, that comes on. It's a Zoom call that starts at three o'clock after her uh, live stream at two o'clock. So if you want to participate in that, uh, well, if you are a subscriber, you should find all the links and all the info to that room. Uh, well, it's on our different social media platforms. You subscriber on Facebook, you can find it there. Of course, it's on our website, on our local page, uh, over on our Patreon page as well. Just all the different places you can find us, uh, it is there. And so if you would take a moment and go. Find it. Uh, you can participate in that session at the three o'clock hour. So, having said all that, let's uh, uh, turn our attention to the first hour of the program. Uh, it is Wednesday, but my dad is with me here today because my mom is having surgery tomorrow, and in fact, uh, he has to leave uh, before the first hour is over. I think he's got to leave about eight forty-five or so because they have a pre-op, I guess, type appointment down in Fort Lauderdale this morning, and so. Uh, they need to get out, out early, as early as they can to get to that. So uh, uh, let's just go ahead and say hello this morning to, to my dad. Uh, how are you doing this morning? Well, I am doing great. Uh, you know, obviously uh, concerned about the surgery and everything. It'll be about her sixth or seventh back surgery. And so, you know, we are to have, have our wits in. This is If this doesn't work, I think we have zero options to accept us to try to live with pain for the next 10 years. And so, you know, ask, I'd really ask everybody in the audience to be praying for her. I think that's a, I think I, I believe in prayer so very, very much. And so, uh, uh, just ask everybody to, to be praying, you know, be praying for, uh, <laughs> for my wife and your mom and, uh, and, uh, you know, all that great thing. That's just, it's just, just really great. Do they have like punch cards? You know, like you go to, you know, Subway, you buy, you know, nine subs, you get the 10th, the 10th one free. Is it, is it, what does it work that way with back surgery? You know, you get, I, I think so. You know, they've got a punch <laughs> card down there. I've got it in my wallet, you know, and I, I've got one for the car wash and I'm two, two things away from that. They sold the car wash. So, I, you know, forget, forget all the, all the punches I've got on my car wash card. Uh, they're, they're there, there no more. And I hope when we walk in the hospital tomorrow, they've, 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 uh, that they've still got that special, you know. I mean, I mean, how a, a foot long subway sandwich for eight back surgeries? I mean, yeah. <laughs> something, right? <laughs> That's pretty exciting to me. Well, so there ought to be some kind of frequent flyer mile or something going on down there. There ought to be. Um, but it will be obviously the audience is already talking about how they'll be praying for it, and we'll keep her in our prayers as well. And uh, hopefully that will go well. Um, this is, as we say, uh, uh, 
We are here every Monday through Thursday. Uh, first hour of the program, by the way, we just sit and answer your Bible questions. If you have any for us, you can go ahead and put those in the comments section. We'll get to them momentarily. Uh, and then, of course, on um, um, second hour of the program, we are currently in a study of the book of First Peter. Uh, and we are in the early verses of First Peter chapter 2. And we'll start that after the um, after the top of the hour. So uh, uh, that's what we have on tap for today. Uh, it is um, again, as I said, good to have my dad with us a day early. Uh, we will be on tomorrow, by the way, just because he's coming on today. Uh, sometimes we do that. He comes on Wednesday when I'm not going to be here Thursday, uh, but I will be here, uh, Lord willing. Uh, excuse me, Lord willing, in the morning, uh, and so that should not be a problem, or from the deep end tomorrow. So, uh, um, Dad, we had a Yesterday, we had a lengthy discussion. Uh, somehow, and when, anytime I start having a discussion, it turns out to be lengthy. Um, about the uh, the new heaven and new earth doctrine out of Second Peter chapter 3. Uh, and there were a couple of questions I did not get around to yesterday. So I, I thought I'd try to catch us up a little bit while we're getting some questions in uh, th from this morning. Uh, I can't put them up on the screen because they were in yester yesterday's feed, not this one. Um uh, but we did have a comment about um, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I think it was, I believe it was from Connie, uh, was asking something about uh, that doctrine about people being baptized for the dead. Um, uh, obviously, that reference is there in 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, I know certain Mormon uh, 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 portions of the Mormon church continue to practice something along those lines. Um, uh, do you have any thoughts on that? I, I, she, she just asked, the question was just why, why do, why do people go bother doing that since, you know, once you're dead, well, you know, you're dead. It, it, it's, it's, you're pointing on them once to die. And after that, yes. the judgment. Well, um, you know, I've, um, uh, for the longest, you know, uh, you know, you read commentaries and everything and, and, uh, there's just so many views about it. So I just sat down and thought, okay, I think I'll just read to see what it says. And it is amazing what it does say. I don't know if you commented about it like uh, yesterday. Not, not at all. But if you not look, at all. If you look carefully at First Corinthians chapter fifteen, Paul says, "We are of all men most most uh, miserable. Your faith is vain." And he just argues and argues about we and us and the resurrection. But there were some who were denying the resurrection. And so that's what that's why that's, they've got this con this this, uh, this controversy here in Corinth. I suspect very likely it was more the Sadducees' influence, though that's not uh, mentioned in the uh, in the text at all. But because the church had Jews in it, and there were the Sadducees who did not believe in the resurrection, I would not even be surprised that if it that uh, that they were the ones who originated this doctrine. It doesn't make any difference where it was coming from. We know the doctrine was there. And so all of a sudden, when you get down, is it verse 29? When you get down to that level, it is not we and us. It is what shall they do? Mm -hmm. And so regardless of what this says, it is not we and us that we're doing it. The first half of this chapter is we and us. And so if you just look at, at what he says, I've got the uh, New King James. I'm not. You've got what the ESV up on the screen. Uh, I can get the New King James for you. Well, well, no, ESV is good enough. I'd be interested in in what it does say. Otherwise, now then, 
he's just argued for up until all of these verses, there is a resurrection. And then he says, otherwise, what does that mean? It means everything I've said is negated by the practice. What shall they do who are baptized for the dead? And you look at it and, um, People look at that and sometimes they'll get into the Greek. The Greek is so amazing. The, the Greek word means actions done by one on behalf of another. That's what this, this Greek preposition means. And a lot of people get there and they try to define this word for, you know, uh, in view of and things of that nature. And that's, that was sort of where I was for the longest time. What does the text say? They were some who were baptizing on behalf of the dead ones. Now then, if the dead do not rise at all, why then are they baptized for the dead? His argumentation is against those who were denying the resurrection. Right. What was their practice? Well, their practice was to baptize, being baptized for the dead. The very fact the Mormons came up with that doctrine and has popularized it in the in the Mormon religion does not mean that individuals in the first century could have gone down that same path. My dead relatives, what about them? You've got the Catholic idea of purgatory, where the fires of purgatory purge, which is the, the sort of the verb form. It's, it's a noun, but it can be used as a verb to talk about the, 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 the removing of sin. And so the Catholic idea, you go to purgatory and, uh, and you're, you're, and what is happening there. And then there are prayers for the dead. Think about lighting candles in Catholicism. It's not a unique thing. It's yeah. present in our society and even more present in our society because of, because of the Catholics and because of the Mormons than others. What shall they do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead do not rise at all, why then are they baptized for the dead? And why do we, now we jump back to the we and us, they are baptizing for the dead. What are we doing? We stand in jeopardy every hour, I affirm, by the boasting you, which I have in Christ Jesus, our Lord, I die daily. And so he says, then he goes on and argues about what's happened in his life. And there must be a resurrection because of the things that I'm suffered. But uh, it, it just appears, and I'm telling you, when I got a difficult passage, I go back and try to forget every commentary I've ever read and say, what is the flow? Not, don't give me the code. I don't need the code ring. Right. What does this text say? And if you will go through and highlight every we and us and our and your, and all of a sudden in, in one verse, and uh, I think it's all in the one verse, it's an argumentation about they. Now then, were they right in doing it? Obviously not. You know, we'll stand before Jesus and give an account for the things done in the body. It, there's a rather amazing verse in the Book of Mormon, and I lived in a in a city where there was a Mormon temple, like they've got in Salt Lake City, when there were only five temples in the in the world. That was in Hamilton, uh, New Zealand, and you grew up there in in Hamilton, at least that early part of your life. So I spent hours and hours studying uh, the Mormon religion. But there's a verse in the Book Book of Mormon um, 
that says emphatically beyond a shadow of a doubt, there is nothing you can do to change your destiny after you die. It is stated in those specific words that uh, your eternal destiny will be determined by what you do while you are living on the earth. Now then, baptism for the dead is a latter day revelation. Even for them, it was not in the original <laughs> book of Mormon because it emphatically says, um, uh, that, uh, uh you cannot, that the, where, when you die, that's it. It is in, in words that are so plain. I, I cannot make it more emphatic. And when I've read that to Mormons, they just say, well, but we've got other re revelations. There you and go. so they ignore the Bible because they've got the latter day revelation. And, uh, and so you've got, you've got these, these same kinds of things happening here. Yeah. Uh, you know, I got into a discussion the other day about, uh, uh, at, right after the Roe v. Uh, Wade, uh, overturning, um, Yes. Got into a discussion uh, with somebody about um, uh, just the idea again that you know the, the best way to uh, handle abortions being harder to get is sexual sexual purity. Keep sex inside of marriage, and you you don't have to worry about everything else. And the counter they gave back back to me was, well, what about you know the concubines and all of that of the Old Testament, um, and you know the multiple marriages and all that in the Old Testament. And I said to, said to the person. You know, not everything that is in the Bible is endorsed by God. You know, there are a whole lot of things that the Bible talks about that are recorded by inspiration, but the, the events themselves are not inspired. They're not God-given doctrines. Just because it's there and recorded doesn't mean that God approved of it. Uh, and, and I think that's part of the problem people have with 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And, and the point you make there about the we and then the they is I think is very, is very critical. This is not a practice that 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 Paul is um, uh, that Paul is endorsing. He's simply recording that it's being done. Uh, there are people who are doing it, and those the, the they that you mentioned uh, that the text mentions, the they are engaging in a practice which would be in uh, uh, contradictory to their own doctrine. Their doctrine is there is no resurrection. Well then, why on earth would you baptize people for the dead if there's no resurrection? If they're if they're, you know, like that old saying goes, was once they're dead, they're dead like Rover, they're dead all over. Uh, what 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 point is it to the practice? So so he's pointing out something that's inconsistent in their practice, but it is not um, uh, an endorsement of the activity in any way whatsoever. Um, <laughs> you know that, that would violate any number of other passages, and one of the one of the principles I've talked about here in terms of Bible study is when you find a clear Bible teaching, don't allow a difficult text or a, a harder text to undermine your confidence on the clear teaching. And the clear teaching is it's appointed unto man once to die, and after that, the judgment. That That's it. That's all you've got. You, you die, and then, then you go to the judgment. That's all there is. So don't allow something over in 1 Corinthians 15, which is admittedly a more difficult text, don't allow that to overturn your confidence in, say, Hebrews chapter nine. Don't do that. Um, you know, and, and it's it's really important to to know the the foundational truths and and use those as kind of the guardrails to help you interpret other biblical passages as well. I see Mountain Man on his back. How did you do you see his post when you first came on a minute ago? He's got to go move his sprinklers. Uh, Travis, <laughs> the Lord sends the rain on the just and the unjust. On yeah. what 
what happens to those men who live live on the mountains and he doesn't get any at all? I mean, he get it right. is there a third category that I've not heard of? <laughs> Got to move your sprinklers and, and he's the Lord sends rain of the judge and you miss that. I don't, Travis. I'm concerned about you. You know, just are you an android or something like that? You know, you know what I mean? Something. <laughs> uh, he, he must be something oh, like man. that. Uh, but yeah. Anyway, um, but th- th- I certainly appreciate that, uh, uh, the, uh, Connie. The, uh, the the question you put in there on that, um, you know, uh, it, it's 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 a. Uh, <laughs> he says his dog likes to run in him about that. Uh, yeah, put it off on the dog, Travis. We know, we 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 believe you. It's just the dog that likes to run around with the sprinklers. <laughs> this this time of year, though, running around the sprinklers for anybody might be uh, might be an enjoyable thing. <laughs> Um, but, um, let's go back to that discussion we had a, a little bit. Uh, and by the way, if you have any Bible questions, feel free to go ahead and, uh, and put those in at, uh, at, at any, any, any point you'd like to, we'd be glad to cover them. I'm just going back looking over, um, uh, yesterday's comments. Cause I had a couple, three that I didn't get to. And I was just I, I was scrolling through there looking for the, um, um, uh, the, the questions that I'm looking for. Uh, James asked a question yesterday. I don't know James is, I don't know if he's, I don't know if he's here. I hadn't seen his name pop up, but James asked a question yesterday, uh, and said, can a woman lead a prayer in a home setting if the man, uh, is there? So you have any thoughts on that, Dad? Uh, Romans 14. You, you understand? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it it is scruples. I feel very very strongly that she should not. Why? Because she does not have the authority to usurp authority over a man, not her husband, but a man. And I've seen a lot of Christians saying, "Well, I was with the family, you know, and there were a lot of men that were there, but none of them were Christian." And they and a woman saying, "They know when I was a Christian, they asked me to lead the prayer." I, if I were a woman, I probably would not do that because I know that is the, that is the absolute safest way on earth to not do wrong is, is, is to, is, is to come at it from that viewpoint, you know, are there any circumstances under which that might, that might happen? It's the same thing. Uh, uh, at what age does a mother stop listening or does a father stop listening to his daughter say her prayers at night? And we want, we, we want the, and then we want the Bible to be so black and white. And I am so thankful for Romans 14 and Romans 15 that says there is room in the kingdom of God for weak brethren to have views that are different from you. And the discussion there is over the matter of eating meat, you know? And so, well, if I buy the meat, you know, but what if, uh, uh, what if I'm not sure where the meat came from and everything good and should I eat it? You understand it. I didn't buy it. Somebody gave it to me. Can I eat it? And so we, they're all, I'm trying to get into some of that scruples areas in relationship to it. Right. You know, I find the meat. So, on the side of the road somewhere. And I know that's not, (laughs) I'm trying to think of a, of a parallel, but, but there are those parallels. And, uh, 
uh, I think we ought to have very firm convictions. And if I were in a Bible class where this question would ask, I would answer by saying, here's the safe thing to do. And for that woman in that family situation, she says, why don't we all just say a private prayer? She's not, she's not having authority over the man. It's not that at all. And, and having authority over, uh, uh, does not mean that a woman could not be the president of a corporation, president of a business. But I know some people, perhaps one, if I call by name who said he would have problems with a woman being a high school principal because there are men in the high school. And so he, he, when he read that verse and a godly man, and I think people would recognize his name and I'm, you know, he's now deceased. So, so uh, he's not here to defend himself in relationship though, though he would not be, would not uh, stand to be defended. But he just said, I just don't think a woman ought to be in any circumstances when she's over the man. Well, I don't agree with him. But that's scruples. And if he wants to live by that and practice that in his life, he has every right to do that. But no one has a, has a right to bind a, pri a private scruples view whether it's a matter of judgment. You know, the, an area that is so clear is, is, about, is about modesty. And, you know, at what point does a skirt become immodest? Is it, is it a right at the knee? Is it two inches above the knee? Is it three inches above the knee? And, and, and if you cannot tell me at what point, then there must not be no immodesty. And so we, we need to, we, we need to understand that. And I'm not saying that the person who asked the question is, a, is dishonest in relationship at all, but I'm just talking about people that you deal with and, uh, and uh, they, they come at it and, and they're like the Pharisees. Uh, I think I'm sure I've mentioned it here on, could you eat a, uh, an egg that had been laid on the Sabbath day? Or could you eat a chicken, little baby chicken that had pecked out of its shell on the Sabbath day and they had made their laws down so strict that the, the chicken was an unholy chicken because he had worked on the Sabbath day pecking through the shell. And so, you know, and I, when, when I heard about that, I thought if I were Orthodox and were ultra conservatives, I on this every, every Saturday morning, I'd go out with a can of, of, of uh, orange collision spray paint. And you're talking about, uh, you know, getting a uh, uh, paint, a uh, paint all over that, all over that chicken and be there for the rest of his life. Why I don't ever want to eat an unholy chicken. <laughs> and, and that's and and that's and, and 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 we do that in the church. We do that in the church. What about the communion bread after services? Can the kids go eat the communion bread? And that was at, at, at West Huntsville. That was, that was a that was a major problem back when I was a kid. Guess why? Guess who? Guess what? And you you, you understand. And uh, my dad was a, a leader in the church, the elder of the church. And out of respect for the conscience of others, not out of respect for the fact God said it. And uh, but that that bread is not holy; it's only holy whenever it is associated with God, and afterwards it's just bread. And so you need to understand that. Yeah, I think sometimes we get to the, the, the we feel the need to have a, an answer for every question. Wow. Um, and and that 
with that that conformity uh, of of thought that we we want everybody to have the same answer to every question. Um, yes. You, you see Elaine's I, I, comment, by the way. You see that, I do. that comment she posted. I do. Uh, yeah, um, and and that's you know she's got it up there. She's she stumbling the screen. I think when the when her husband was a non-believer, she prayed, uh, teaching the children to pray. Um, but when he became a believer, she stopped leading the prayers. Uh, I, I assume that means she stopped leading them. I'm sure Lane didn't stop praying. <laughs> but yeah. uh, uh, yeah. now now he now he leads them. Um, but I don't know of a single verse. I mean that that passage in First Timothy two. Um, to me, to, you know, particularly particularly when you connect it to chapter three, because I think that's all one section, at least yes. from the start of two to the end of three, where there's prayer, there's modest stress, there's the the organization of uh, of, of male leadership uh, in terms of teaching and the authority. There's the elders and the deacons, the qualifications there, and then Paul at the end of that chapter says, Timothy, I'm trying to come to you, but if I can't, if I'm delayed, I've written these things so that you may know how you ought to behave yourself. In the house of God, which I take to be the assembly within the church, within within the function in the assembly of the church. Point being that those 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 restrictions are not specifically written about the privacy of the home. Uh, you know, obviously, for, take for example the, the restrictions the restrictions on women in First Timothy chapter two of being adorned in modest apparel. Well, that doesn't always happen in the home, uh, and so that they to take those passages and apply them directly and universally into the home is going to cause some problems. Um, and, um, you know, the, the point being that there may be principles that you want to take from that and apply into the home of spells of, of male leadership in the home and all of that. But I certainly don't have the, 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 the wherewithal to, to, to try and create regulations about how you conduct yourself and all of your prayers in the home. Um, you know, uh, Julie is a much better singer than I am, uh, and, but I have, you know, over the course of my time, uh, been called upon to lead singing quite a bit. Uh, I can't tell you how many times I have grabbed a songbook and said, hey, Julie, could you sing this for me? Because I need to hear it. I, 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 I don't, how's, how's this little portion of this line go? How, how's this, how's this, how, how's the, how's the melody, melody go right there? Because she's a lot better at it than I am. Um, and, and, you know, she has taught me several times how to sing that that line of song i don't particularly have a problem with that uh, other people might other people might very well and that meant you right to romans 14 i don't know of a single text that addresses that kind of thing and so there is there's liberty in christ to do as you uh as you see fit and conduct yourself in your own own home but your point about you know if, if in doubt romans 14 says don't do it so take the safe path. If you have doubt about it, the answer is very simple. Take the safe path every single time. There's a comment here, uh, Jonathan, and uh, maybe you ought to quit letting me see these comments and everything. But uh, Travis <laughs> says, uh, Dan, did you teach your children? Jonathan in particular. So this is really a question I think you need to answer. <laughs> that after generations of preachers, he appears to have strong confidence in following understanding um, that uh, that occasionally are not mainstream. Occasionally, I know. I, my, I, I, pre I appreciate he, he put the word occasionally in there. I do. I, <laughs> I tried, Jonathan, and I, I really tried to do this. What if the Jehovah's Witnesses are right? What if the Mormons are right? And so I really tried not to teach you Church of Christ doctrine, and your devotion be uh, tied to what. Uh, 
you know, what your your uh, you know, your dad believes, your uncles believe, your cousins believe, your your uh, your 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 aunts, your and uh, your grandfather, and what he did when all the years he was preaching and everything. But your devotion is to truth, and so you sit down and you read the Bible. And if the Jehovah's Witness is right. Jonathan, I would, I would want you to be a Jehovah's witness. And I may have said that to you way, way back yonder in yeah. relationship to this. I mean, it's just, it, it was a mindset in my heart that said, do I believe what I believe because my dad and my mom taught it to me? And so how do I avoid that? Well, how, how do I in my own children? And it's the ability to read the Bible and understand it. And, and, and be balanced in your life. Uh, you know, all of us, depending on how you define mainstream or not mainstream, it just depends on, on what part of the river you're standing at and who's looking at it and who's defining mainstream. Mm -hmm. But I know what truth is and I know what is undeniably true because the Bible emphatically says it and I understand it. And people that will just use reason and listen to the words of the text and have a respect for what it says and be willing to go where that text was and wherever it leads. That's, that's, that's the approach. And that's what, that's what I preach. And I wish, I wish individuals preach that more in the church today, because oftentimes in Bible class, a question will be asked in a Bible class and somebody will immediately give an answer. They've not even thought of that. They, they, well, it's what my granddad believed or my father believed. And they've not even thought it through. It's not their belief. It's just what they've believed all their lives. And that's not honest. And so we need to be willing to get in the text and wherever it is, and then be balanced enough to not destroy the faith of others because I may misunderstand it. I may not, my understanding of it may not be that, but I have every right to give you the reasons that I believe for the hope that is in me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I do remember one thing you said. Um, I don't know. I, I remember from way back, probably before I started, I, I know it was before I started preaching. I remember you made a comment about uh, you and uh, Ronald Coleman um, and uh, heading over to New Zealand, you know, in the sixties, there is no, there is no internet. There's very di difficult international phone calls, that kind of stuff. There's no, there's, there's no, there's no communication. And, you know, you went over to New Zealand halfway across the world down there by yourself. And it's just the two of you and you yes. can't pick up the phone and call your college professors. You can't pick up the phone and, and you don't get the, you don't get the, the, the brotherhood publications coming to the house every week. And you've got, you're, you've got Bible questions. You've got to answer. And you just, you just, you just, you had each other, you had each other to sit down and study with. Um, and that, that is a, that, that, that's a, that, that's a challenge. I, I mean, it, 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 that, it's hard to replicate that today. Cause today, if you have a Bible question, you can just get on the internet and call somebody or, or you contact somebody and, and you, yes. and you can find out, you can find out the right answer to every question that comes along. Um, and so I think part of that, part of whatever Travis thinks he sees in me is, is, uh, you know, come by it honestly, because that—that's how you—you all—you all came by it. Was you—you—you you, you were put in a situation, or you 
put yourself in a situation where you had each other and no other authorities to to to, and to, to, to fall back on, and you just studied your way into certain things. I I owe a real debt to Jehovah's Witnesses and Seventh Day Adventists because we were young. I did not know these doctrines, all of that was well, same thing about Mormonism, and uh, but uh, we'd have a study. We'd try to study with people. We, we would visit denominational churches and try to have a study with the preacher and everything. We were just trying to do whatever we could. Paul went to the synagogues, and we just we were just trying to find somebody to teach the truth to. And I've been in studies with the Jehovah's Witness, and they would nail my hide to the wall mm-hmm. because I didn't understand Daniel, or I didn't understand a phrase in the in, in either the New Testament or the Old Testament. And at the end of the study, I would always say, man, this has been great. Could we study the next week? Next week at this same time, could we study? And for the next seven days, I was inside the text doing everything I can. And my understanding of so many things about, uh, uh, about the, uh, uh, the, the, uh, the New Testament church and the coming of the promise of the Spirit and things of that nature, I didn't learn them from somebody else. I learned them just by reading the text and seeing it and grabbing a hold of it. And, um, and, and so, I mean, once you give up Acts 239 and 238, you are in a bundle of trouble in reference to the absolute personal indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Now, that doesn't mean that if you believe in the personal indwelling of the Holy Spirit, that you're going to go to hell. It's just an understanding that is void. And there are things that I taught in my earlier years that uh, that I no longer teach. Why? Because I had gone to the Christian colleges. I'd been around great and godly preachers. And you asked me a question. Well, I remember how Brother V.P. Black, what he said about this. And West Huntsville had some really good preachers coming in to, to preach. And I heard, of, heard lots of them, heard some that were not so good. And uh, <laughs> just to... Just, just to be around them and everything, and it's so easy just to to give an answer without without thinking about it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, I, I can speak to, to, to one thing, Travis. Uh, well, uh, yeah, I, let me just check real quick. I'm, my dad, you got to get out of here in about seven or eight minutes. Um, yes. Just wanted to. Um, uh, just if we had anything else that I need to get to before we get to it, I, I, yeah, I, I want to follow up. Look at, look, look at Jonathan Exum's comment about Jesus riding on the ground. People would be debating what they're now riding on the. Before I was at Freedom Hardham, it was during the, it was it was two or three years. It was Alan Hires Hugh Fulford generation. I heard this from Alan. He was in a class, and it was there was there was this guy, and uh, he wasn't paying all that much attention, but they were studying this passage. And it was either Brother Dixon or Brother Hardiman. So if it were Brother Hardiman, it would not have been there in the time when Alan or Hugh were there. But he said, uh, uh, Fred, or he said, what did Jesus write on the ground? Well, he only heard the question. And so he said to Brother Hardiman, said, uh, uh, well, he says, uh, uh, Brother Hardiman, I used to know that, but I forgot. And Brother Hardiman's <laughs> comment was, all of these years, nobody has ever known what he wrote on the ground. And the one person that used to, used to know this has forgotten what Jesus said, brought Jesus wrote on the ground. I love uh, it. 
And I love mm. that comment. <laughs> so, so don't bluff it. You know, when it comes to Bible answering Bible questions, don't ever bluff it. Be willing to in relationship. Or, or pay, pay pay better attention in class. That way, that way you don't get caught asking a asking a question. Uh, I had a, had a similar thing with a a friend of mine at, at the Memphis School of Preaching. It was our first quarter. And Richard Curry teaches a Bible geography. He did when I was there. He taught this, this, one of your first classes is Bible geography. Great class. One of, the, one of the most helpful classes I ever took. And Brother Curry had been teaching it probably 35 years. And he told us first week of the first week of class, he says, on the first test, I'm going to have a question. A true, false question. Did Moses, did Moses build the ark? He said, I put it on every test. And he says, every time, every time, every year. Somebody in the class misses that question. <laughs> so sure enough, it was on the first test. <laughs> and there, there was a, a, another Jenkins in the class, Brian Jenkins. He's not, not related to us, but Brian and I had met. While we, we actually, we were, we, we go, you got race funds and all that kind of stuff. We met at the Adamsville Church of Christ about a month or so before uh, we ever, because we were both there to, you know, raise, trying to raise some funding to get school. Um and so I'd met him. So he and I had already had a relationship and I, he sat right across from me and brother Curry started going through that. We were going through question by question, reviewing the test. And he got to that one and he said, yep, somebody missed it. Somebody missed it. And I just looked at the corner of my eye and Brian's head started going down. <laughs> I'm like, <laughs> I about had to pick me up off the floor because <laughs> sure enough, somebody missed it. Uh, but yeah, pay attention in Bible class. <laughs> Jonathan, I've, I've done this when I've taught Revelation, and, you know, in schools of preachings and everything. I, I'll be uh, uh, teaching or something, everything, and they're not really paying attention. And so I will get unbelievably excited. I said, man, let me tell you what I did. Look in Hezekiah chapter 4, verse 2. <laughs> and class because of the enthusiasm that I have built up about about it, they think there's a book in the Bible called Hezekiah, and I'm talking about I'm talking about preachers that really, really know the Bible, but they're just not listening. And so I get so excited. I said, "Look at the look at Hezekiah chapter four verse two. Look at it, read it." And they're over there flipping through the Bible, and then all of a sudden, you know, uh, <laughs> doing that. That just uh, well. You, you could you could probably get me today on a uh, on my tablet because you know when I'm, when I'm doing logos the, the Bible oh, yes, program yes. on my tablet you press the button and it brings up a block of all the Bible books you know it's got sixty six of them they're all abbreviated to get it all on one screen and for the life of me I know I know the order of the books of the Bible I really do but for the life of me when I'm trying to find. <laughs> where a Bible book is on that tablet. I am like looking all over the place trying to find one. So uh, you might get me on Hezekiah on the, on the tablet. Cause I would just, I would just about, I can't, I can't find anything on that. Uh, I've got the same thing with one of my Bible pros and I've got a fat thumb or a fat finger. And when I punch <laughs> Isaiah, I hit the word above Isaiah, the word below Isaiah. I'm, I'm sure we're, I'm the only person on earth that does that. Probably, probably about the only one. Well, it has been good today. I need to, I need to shoot yep. out of here. I've got the, I'm going to get you to the, the hospital's about 60 miles away. So I need to make okay. sure there's no traffic jam down in Fort Lauderdale and, and uh, the surgery will be in the morning, God willing. Is she and staying I, down there tonight, or is she going to go back down to be praying for Judy? What is, is she staying down there tonight, or is she coming back home and go back down tomorrow? 
Um, we still don't know. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. Um, you know, uh, it, it's uh, likely. Well, I, I'll, I'll try. I'm going to be back at Palm Beach Lakes tonight, depending on what happens and everything. And uh, and so uh, you know, uh, they may. I may leave them down there in a hotel room or something because it's a long way to get up at six o'clock in the morning. Right. Right. And uh, because she's got the special soap that she's got to, to wash in and everything before surgery and everything and. So we're trying to take an easy path and make it as easy as we can. But uh, let me just ask again that that all of you today and tomorrow and for the next several days, keep Judy in your prayers. I mean, um, we have just uh, celebrated our 63rd year anniversary of marriage, and we dated four years of that. I don't remember not being married to Judy. (laughs) 67 years she's been in my life. And... uh, and and we're still on the honeymoon. That's the great part of it. There you go. That's the great That's part. Outstanding. Of it. Well, have safe travels down there, and uh, you know, give my mom uh, my, my best, okay. and we'll, we yeah. will continue to pray for her. Um, now, now, I'm out of here, day. and I would encourage everybody to give Jonathan the five toughest questions you can give, uh, <laughs> and let's just uh, it stump Jonathan for the next fifteen minutes. We'll see you uh-huh. guys. No, no, we, 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 there's no way he's getting through five questions in 15 minutes. So I don't have to worry about that. <laughs> anyway, have safe travels, dad, and give my mom, give mom the best. All right. All right, everybody. Um, <laughs> uh, Mary, uh, playing all that says, did Moses build the, the Ark of the Covenant? I guess you could. Okay. Um, uh, um, you know, actually, as, as I think about it, I don't think the question was actually, did Moses build the ark? I think the question was, did um, did Moses's ark land on Mount Ararat? I think that was the actual phraseology, the, uh, phrase of the phraseology of the question. Uh, but uh, I'll get back to what Travis talked about earlier. Um, and now that my dad's gone, I'll talk about him a little bit. Um, you know, part of that that, that, that streak that's in me, Travis, I, I, I again, I learned it honestly. Um, my dad, um, you know, I, I knew for pretty much all my life when I was old enough to, uh, to have any kind of, um, um, awareness of it. Um, you know, my dad early dates the book of revelation and it was never a, a thing in the sense that, that, you know, he, he like, you know, taught me, oh, you got to do this and that, that kind of stuff or not. Um, but, um, um, I, I saw him defend that and, and talk about it often and, and knew it was not part of a mainstream, um, uh, position. And so, I mean, I got, I got to see that, uh, uh, you know, up close and firsthand. And, um, I, over the years came to think that he was right, particularly as I was going through Memphis and I was taught the other direction and, and, um, uh, I was not convinced by the argumentation, but the, for the late date, which I was taught by Brother Cates, um, I, I I still held on to the early date. Um, and you know, Travis, you talk about the things that that I believe that are not mainstream. Uh, I got to tell you, a lot of it comes from early dating the Book of Revelation, and subsequent to that, or in addition to that, just uh, coming under the influence of Brother Camp, um, and pretty much. Uh, everything that I hold that is not mainstream, as you call it, uh, pretty well flows out of that line of thinking. Uh, as, as my dad just mentioned a minute ago, uh, you know, you get to the Holy Spirit and you you come away with a different understanding of Acts two thirty eight and thirty nine. The dominoes just kind of fall in place. 
Um, and, and, you know, I, I don't know that the early date of Revelation is the linchpin for it, but it was, in my mind, the first domino that fell. Um, as I have thought about things more completely, I think it's probably downstream quite a bit from the, the foundational portions of it. Um, but, you know, my views on the Holy Spirit uh, are connected to all of that. Um, you know, if you're going to early date the book of Revelation, then you open up the door that the, 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 the revelation, not the book, but the revelation of God was completed uh, early, not, not, not at the end of the first century, but much earlier than that. Um, and then when you, you know, start studying the Holy Spirit, um, and, and the way that I began to approach the Holy Spirit was, if you've read the, the book that I wrote on it, that front-to-back mentality. Um, I'm, I, my views on the Holy Spirit are not d- dictated by the New Testament. Uh, my views on the Holy Spirit come from the Old Testament. Um, and it, it's just, but it, it, in my mind, at least, all of those things are interconnected. And at least for me, once those dominoes started falling, once once you begin to see the the the, the well the interconnection uh, of all of those different uh, different parts of the puzzle, it just started making perfect sense to me. Um, and that is that that is um, um, a lot of where, as you call it, confidence comes from. It just fits, uh, and since it fits. You know, it's 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 going to be really hard for some someone to back me off of my positions because it's not just one string. Now you've got to pull. You got to pull a whole bunch of strings. Um, if if you wanted to back me off of those non mainstream positions, the 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 one string you could pull that I think might start to unravel some of the things I believe would probably be related to physical and spiritual death. Um, if you could somehow convince me that the death of Adam and Eve was that was promised was spiritual death, that would probably unravel a bunch of stuff for me. Um, and I, I, if 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 that happened, obviously we, I've talked about that in the past. We're dealing with the realized eschatologist. I think that's their fatal flaw. Uh, they spiritualize death in the garden, and then they spiritualize death everywhere else. Um, I think I'd go a different direction. I, I think if, if I think if I believed. A, a true spiritual death in the garden. I might. I, I think. I, I think I'd go closer. Probably not full blown Calvinism, but I, I, I think that's where I would end up. It is 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 it, it, it is over there so somewhere in that somewhere in that vicinity. It'd be wrong, but I, I think that's where I'd end up. But you know that that's where it is for me, Travis. It's that it's it's it, it, it's there, there's there's two or three things. Um, that that happened in my life, a lot of it attributable, attributable to my father and his influence, absolutely. But it, it's it's two or three things that kind of brought the entire text together. Um, and that's one reason, you know, as we study First Peter together, we study Romans together, I am so um, uh, forceful on making sure we leave a text, particularly when we're studying the New Testament, leave the text in the first century. Because when you when you don't do that, the Bible to me becomes a bunch of unrelated text, unrelated books, and and I don't think that's the case. Um, I, I've said this before in this class is that um, 
I don't believe there are any orphaned verses in the Bible. I don't. Um, that there for every Bible verse, there is another Bible verse which teaches the truth <clears throat> about that verse. Um, and so when I come across a verse I don't understand, I come across a verse that I, I've got questions about, the first thing that I do, well, other than check the immediate context and just do what my dad says, read it, check your pronouns, check your verb tenses, check whether the word is singular or plural. Uh, we've played that game a little bit, you know, take a positive statement and make it negative. Just, just change it around in your mind and ask yourself the question, <clears throat> what does the verse teach and what does the verse not teach? What does it say? What does it not say? Um, and, and, and just go through that mental exercise and, and it's like you're just picking up an object and, and looking at it from every possible situation you know, if you can, you open it up, you invert it, you see what's on, and you're just, you're just trying to examine it from every possible way. And then when that happens and you get through that process, the next thing I do is I start looking for another verse. <laughs> take that phrase, take that word, take it into another context. Uh, you know, start obviously with that word or that phrase as it's used by um, a, a different Bible writer. Or find out if that phrase is used, um, you know, um, um, only by a certain person. Uh, you know, we're studying through the book of Romans. Uh, <clears throat> in the book of Romans, that whole flesh-spirit discussion that's in the book of Romans. Um, I, I bet you would surprise even some very well-studied Bible students, and by that I mean probably some preachers. I, I bet you would surprise them if you talk to them about where is that flesh-spirit couplet outside the writings of Paul? Because they would think the flesh spirit, you know, the, the dichotomy of flesh and spirit is found. They, they, they would call that, you know, just a New Testament or a Bible concept. It's not. The flesh spirit couplet is not a Bible concept. It's a Pauline concept. Uh, Peter doesn't really use it. Uh, mentions flesh once or twice, but not really in the construct that Paul does. Uh, Jesus talks about flesh spirit in John 3. Uh, the where we were, you know, being born again, that which is of the flesh is flesh, that which is born of the spirit is spirit. But essentially not in the writings of John. It, it's a Pauline concept. And it's not even really a Pauline concept across all of his books. It's primarily a, a, a concept in Galatians and Romans. A little bit in 1 Corinthians, uh, 1 Corinthians 2 and 3. Uh, but even there, the, the word there is spiritual and natural. Uh, end of two, and then carnal at the beginning of three. It's not really even a full Pauline concept. Uh, it's primarily Romans and Galatians. And so you do that, you do that kind of thing. And so once you see that, okay, <clears throat> Paul uses this expression. John doesn't use it. Okay, why would Paul need the expression and not John? Why? What's different about their ministry? What's different about their teaching? What's different about the audience they're writing to? And so that's the process, and you just have to stop and, and think through um, um, uh, think through everything. Uh, but anyway, uh, let's see what we have here. We've got about six minutes left. What are you talking about? Just the second time I've seen that. The Taco Tuesday Feast of Revelation. I have no idea what you're talking to, man. Referring to a picture posted about a... Oh. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> 
Uh, now I know what you're talking about, Jonathan. Oh, yes. It was a comment I made last night on a Facebook post. <laughs> Lebeth Brewer put up this uh, picture of a table full of tacos and, and just taco fixings. And I said, that's that's got to be in Revelation somewhere. That, that's got to be in heaven. <laughs> so now I know what you're talking about, Jonathan. Uh, that's right. That's right. Uh, let's see if I've got time to do a Sue's question about Ezekiel 14. I don't know that passage right off the top of my head here. Um, Sue, so give me just a second to pull up my Bible program and get us over into Ezekiel. Uh, and since it's in Ezekiel, I'm going to take a good chance on saying I have five minutes to say I don't know. How about that? Um. And apparently, if you type in EZ, you get Ezra, not Ezekiel. So I have to type in at least EZE to get me Ezekiel. My Bible program and I have a disagreement about how you abbreviate a Bible, a Bible verses. So let me go ahead and pull that up on the screen and get to uh, Sue's question. I have a question about the meaning of 17 down through um, uh, 23. So let's go here. Uh, if I bring a sword upon the, that land and say, let a sword pass through the land, and I cut cut I cut off from it man and beast, uh, though these three men were in it, as I live, declares the Lord, they would neither deliver their sons nor their daughters, but they alone would be spared. If I send a pestilence in the, into the land and pour out my wrath upon it with my blood, or with blood rather, to cut off from it man and beast, even if Noah, Daniel, and Job were in it, as I declare the Lord, God, they would neither deliver a son nor daughter but they would deliver but their own lives by righteousness. For thus says the Lord God, how much more when I send upon Jerusalem my four disastrous acts of judgment, sword, famine, wild beast, and pestilence, to cut off from it man and beast. Behold, some survivors will be left in it, sons and daughters who will be brought out. Behold, when they come out to you and you see their ways and the deeds, I will be upon, uh, you will be consoled for the disaster that I brought upon Jerusalem. For all that I have brought upon it, they will console you when they see uh, when you see their ways and their deeds, and you should know that I have not done it without cause, uh, that I've done there, declares the Lord. Um, um, well, I keep hitting the, the, the by, um, is that in line with the wrong text there? Uh, 14, keep hitting the, which text do you need? Because uh, Which text are you on, Sue? Is that 14 or 13? 14 is pretty simple. Uh, God's bringing judgment upon Jerusalem, and you got to be righteous. You know, Noah, Daniel, and Job would only, if they were in the city when judgment came, only uh, 13. You want chapter 13 or verse 13? Let's go to chapter 13. Maybe that's a, maybe that's the, the text that we're after there. Um, um, or is it verse 13? Wait and see if Sue will give me an answer on that real quick. Um, doo -doo -doo, this delay is really annoying. Um, chapter 13. Okay, chapter 13, and I guess we'll start in verse, um, now, now the verse is scrolled off the screen, verse 17 through 23. Um, and you, son of man, set your face against the daughters of your people who prophesy out of their own hearts, prophesy against them and say, thus says the Lord, Woe to the women who sew magic bands upon all wrists and make veils for the head of every person of, of, of stature in the hunt for souls. Will you hunt, hunt down souls belonging to my people and keep your own souls alive? You have profaned me among my people. For handfuls of barley and for pieces of bread, putting to death souls who should not die, keeping alive souls who should not live by lying to your people, uh, uh, listen to lies. Therefore, says the Lord God, behold, I'm against your magic bands, which you hunt, hunt the souls like birds, 
and I will tear them from your arms. I will let the souls whom you hunt go free, the souls like birds, your veils, while I also tear off and deliver my people out of your hand, and they shall no more be in your hand as prey. Uh, and you shall know that I am the Lord because you have disheartened the righteous uh, falsely. Although you have not grieved him, you have encouraged the wicked, uh, and he should not turn away from his evil to save his life. Therefore, uh, you shall see no more false visions or practice practice divination. I will deliver uh, my people out of your hand. Okay. Um, the, um, the the specific practice and reference here to the uh, <clears throat> you know sewing up the magic bands upon your wrist and all of that. I, I'm sure there is a historical reference there, a cultural reference, and I am not uh, immediately um, uh, familiar with it. Uh, so I can't, I can't comment on that. There's probably a commentary that would have a, a, an idea on it, but I think the context here is pretty, pretty easy. If you go back up to the beginning of chapter 13, uh, this is a prophecy against the prophets of Israel, and these are false prophets of Israel. Uh, and that's where the, that's where the uh, um, uh, chapter ends as well. Here are these false visions or this, this witchcraft, uh, this divination that they're doing. Uh, and so there are obviously uh, some, uh, uh, the daughters of the people who prophesy. So these are female prophets who practice some form of divination. Obviously, that is uh, highlighted by the you know the magic, excuse me, the magic bands and the veils. Probably some of the costumes they have for uh, uh, for for the practicing of the uh, of the divination. <laughs> Travis says that ancient manuscripts say the magic bands were Apple smartwatches. <laughs> Maybe so. Um, but the, the idea of hunting down souls, uh, unless there's more here that I know, uh, which is possible because this is not a text. Strangely enough, this is not a text I have prepped for in answering your question. So this this could be a little bit of an I don't know answer. But but as I have read this text and, and read it here, uh, I, I think the hunting down for souls is just that they are uh, they are doing this for for money. Uh, they do it for a handful of barley. So they're they're trying to get fed and paid, and again, time of Ezekiel, you're in the midst of the the the, the uh, Babylonian uh, uh, capturing uh, uh, of, of of the destruction of Jerusalem takes place over a span of about 20 years. Times are tough. These these are women out there who are practicing divination, false prophets giving false prophecy, and trying to get paid for it, uh, and they're lying to the people. And God's complaint against them obviously is. Uh, you have disheartened the righteous falsely, so you've given them bad news, and you have encouraged the wicked and encouraged this individual. Uh, you know, you're telling the wicked person what they want to hear, so they'll pay you for the prophecy. Uh, and because of that, because of your influence, they're not going to be willing to repent. Okay, so I think that's all that all this phrase up here means: hunt down souls belonging to my people and keep your own souls alive. Um, I think they're just you're trying to get people into your camp. And in so doing, by getting the people into your camp, uh, then they will then um, um, continue to give you handfuls of barley in order to pay for you. So you're gathering the party around you, making them dependent upon you and your visions so that they uh, will support you in this time of um, hardship. So I, that that's all I see there. Uh, and again, that's just right off the top of my head, Sue. Uh, there, there could be more behind that. That you know, it could be some kind of idiomatic expression or something like that that I don't know of. Uh, but um, I, I'd have to, I'd have to dig more fully on it and just to check on it. But I, I don't think there's more there. I don't think you know, I don't think that's any kind of a, uh, any kind of a mystical type thing where they're like you know somehow capturing people's souls or something of that nature. 
I think it just means they're gathering their party together to make sure they get fed. Don't want to have to go out and do an honest day's work. I'll just lie to them and, and you know, put, put on the costume and give them the prophecy that they want so that they'll, uh, in the end, take care of me. I think that's all that's going on there. Um, and the effect of that is, of course, they are lying to righteous people and disheartening them and encouraging the wicked to keep going about their wicked duties, uh, their wicked actions, rather. So I think that I think that's all that's there. Um, anyway, appreciate that uh, for first hour of the program here. Let's go ahead and take our break again. Thank my dad for coming on, and uh, hope uh, you all keep my, him and my mom in in, um, in your prayers. Uh, don't know if you saw the person in the background at the end of there, but that was my sister. Uh, she was uh, helping get some things organized, uh, and uh, she is down there to uh, uh, help them during this period of time. Uh, and that is, I'm thank, very thankful for that. Very, very thankful for that. One, she's better at it. And two, my sister's there. So, I, I, you know, I don't have, I'm, I'm not, I don't have to go down there and, and <laughs> do that. My sister's taking care of it. <laughs> Love my sister for that. Uh, but uh, I'm, I'm sure she will do a, a, a very good job. She and my mom have a very good relationship. So uh, looking forward to, to that. Thankful that she was able to come down and help. So uh, we will. Uh, wrap this first hour up, and if you all, you all would give me just a few moments here, I will uh, get us uh, to the break, and then we will come back and um, continue the uh, the second hour of the program uh, here in uh, just a moment.
Well, welcome back to From the Deep End, everybody. Um, we are going to pick up our study of First uh, Peter today uh, in this hour, and we are going to be, oh, in chapter two. Uh, we are kind of in the early stages of chapter two at the moment. Um, we just spent some time uh, in the close of yesterday's program. We were down about verse four, down through about um, um, verse number eight or so. That that next section of it, uh, we spent a good deal of our time, probably most of our time, um, yesterday dealing with the first couple of verses there, first three verses, where um, the um, the exhortation of Peter, uh, I believe, is um, twofold. Number one, the idea of putting away all the evil things that we talked about yesterday uh, is, is a direct result of the kind of the situation I think that people are going to be in, or, or the kind of situation they are in. Uh, the fiery trial has come upon them. And as is natural uh, during a period of tribulation, during a period of trial, what are you going to do? Uh, likely you're going to start turning on one another, start blaming each other for, excuse me, all the things that have gone wrong. You know, it's their fault or, you know, why, why am I suffering more than they are? I might be jealous of them or, or whatever the situation is. You can, you can imagine uh, in, in a period of trial like that, how it would be very easy uh, to, uh, to question yourself. Uh, to become insecure about these things, to lack faith, to have doubt, <clears throat> and then that very easily could could you know manifest itself in anger, and jealousy, and hatred toward others that are that are in your party. You may think they have caused your suffering. You may be upset that they're not suffering in the same way that you are, or or whatever the situation. The solution to that is to put that away, and as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word, King James, uh, ESV, long for the pure spiritual milk. Um, and I made the point yesterday, and I'll, I'll stick with it, that um, I don't think this is this this idea of, a, of of being a babe and desiring milk is not the same as say the book of Hebrews, where uh, they have need of milk and not strong meat. I don't think Peter in First Peter is saying you need to turn to the simple truths of the Bible to get rid of malice, deceit, and so on. Although <laughs> although that thought might not actually be a bad one either. I don't think that's exactly the point that he's making. Uh, I believe the point that he's making uh, more more uh, more uh, uh, broadly is that um, the um, the um, hold on a second. I'm playing around with the buttons there. Sorry, I got the wrong ones up. Um, the the point that he's making more broadly is that the the nourishment for your soul only comes from from God's word. And that's the only source of it. All right. So again, that is the way that you will get through this hard time is to is to go back and rely on God's word. We then looked at kind of as an overview of verses four through eight about the structure of this, of this next section. Uh, if you've been with us for very long on this study, I think we're on lesson 11 or 12 now. Um, my, you, you will have heard me say pretty much every day, and I'm going to say it again here today, I think the audience, uh, the intended audience for First Peter, is not, if not exclusively Jewish, it is very much, it's very heavily Jewish, because that's Peter's concern. Uh, is the gospel to the circumcised? Galatians chapter two, um, and the structure of this next section to me just screams I'm writing to a Jewish audience, uh, because his his point in this entire uh, in this entire section is that. Um, this 
as you have come to God, specifically to Jesus, um, you have, are being built into a spiritual house. And so if you could, if you're a Jew into a temple and it's in that place that the holy priesthood stands and offers spiritual sacrifices through Jesus. So you've come to God in his temple through the high priesthood of Jesus. You are offering a holy priesthood. You're doing your spiritual service in that temple. Uh, and then he quotes from Isaiah a couple of times. Uh, and then, well, and then uh, also Psalm, I think, 118 in this next section. And in so doing, in making those quotations, um, you have um, another connection back to, to Judaism, in my opinion. He quotes things that would be relevant to and motivating for uh, a Jewish reader. And I do not think you can um, skip over this structure that we see, have already seen through, through the early verses of 1 Peter. Uh, I've emphasized several times through here, and I'm going to do it just briefly here again, just the connection that Peter continues to make to the, to the plan of God, to the fulfillment of prophecy. This was, you know, from the very opening of the book, it was done according to the foreknowledge of God. The prophets prophesied of this. The angels have desired to look into it. This same word, is, is that which was done. The Spirit predicted the, the sufferings of the Christ and the subsequent glories. And it's just, it's a heavy reliance on that, that this, is, this is what you, you know, you started as Jews. Um, you understood the Old Testament scriptures. You, you, you gave uh, uh, devotion to the, to the prophets and their words. You have relied on those all of your life. And now this true grace of God in which you're standing you need to understand its connection back to the prophets, back to the plan of God, and so on. And he does that same thing here uh, in, in the middle section here of, 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 or the opening section here, 1 Peter chapter 2, is that this the Jesus that you are following, the Christ, is the chief cornerstone. And just as Isaiah prophesied, just as the psalmist prophesied, everything that's happening, the rejection of, the, of your nation, of Jesus rather, by your nation, is according to prophecy. And I believe that's the argumentation here. Uh, your people are turning away uh, and, and, and don't let that trouble you because the scriptures foretold that when the Christ came, that people would reject him. And indeed they did. So let's take a moment. That's, that's kind of what brings us up to speed with where we were. We spent some time there talking about how they were destined to do that. We looked at Romans 9 through 11, uh, and 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 made some points there, but let's go back for just a few moments here and actually look at the the verbiage, the actual language of this section of the text as we uh, begin to work our way through it. He says, um, "You have come to him, okay, um, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious." All right, so you have come as you have come to him. Here is a living stone as opposed to a dead stone. Uh, that, that would be the obvious, right? He doesn't just say a stone. He refers to it as a living stone, okay? Critical. Um, we're talking here, obviously, about the temple. That's the illusion um, that in, in this entire section. This spiritual house that's being built up would be a, a reflection back to the temple. I don't know if Peter has this in mind right here or not. 
no way, no way of me for knowing of, of my knowing that, but I do suspect at least that the idea that this is a living stone would be in contrast to the dead stones of the temple. Um, it's an interesting statement that Jesus makes. I think it's the last, is it the last verse of Matthew 23? Um, I think it's the last verse. Um, um, no, it's not. Where is it? <laughs> there it is, the second to last verse. I couldn't find it. It's right there in 38. As, as you know, we spent, we, we in this class have spent a lot of time talking about uh, Matthew 24 and everything it says about the fall of Jerusalem there in Matthew 24. Um, but this is one of those ch chapters, uh, one of these sections where you need to understand this is a flowing context through Matthew 22, 23, 24, leading up to the, um, to the crucifixion. Um, you go all the way back up, you see, this is where red letter help you. You see all this is just red. This is, this is one conversation. Okay, um, and and we we have it here in verse in Matthew chapter twenty three verse one. Um, in Matthew twenty two, they're they're calling him out. They're asking him questions, and he answers every one of their questions to the point that Matthew says, after this point, nobody dared ask him any more questions. Okay, but as you continue through this whole section, uh, you know they're trying to trip him up. They're trying to talk to them and so on. He's in Jerusalem. And that's why when you get here to the end of end of 23 and then into 24, he's in the city center. This conversation is taking place, and that's why it says, then Jesus went out and departed from the temple. Well, guess where he was? He was in the temple grounds. Okay, all of this conversation that you see in the in the in the in the lead up to this, in, in this, you know, this this passion week, sometimes we call it. These conversations are taking place at the temple. He's right in the center of Jerusalem. He had to leave the temple, right? So in chapter 23, where he is talking about these, the woe unto you scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites, he says to them at the very end of it, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. This is one of the, I mean, this to me is a Strikingly poignant verse. Strikingly poignant. Uh, it, it, it reflects back to, to the book of Ezekiel, when the glory of the Lord departs from the temple as judgment is coming upon Jerusalem. You've got the same thing here. See, he says, just even that first word, see, in my mind, in my mind's eye, Jesus is here in the temple grounds. And he says to this crowd gathered around, as he has heard them, heard him rather, for the last, you know, how long would it take you to read Matthew 23? If that were a speech, five minutes. The last five minutes, woe unto you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites. And he has he has systematically, blind by line, torn down uh um the 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 perceived um uh righteous structure of Judaism, the religious leaders, all of that. He's been tearing it down line by line. And he gets here to the end and he says, Jerusalem, I've wanted to save you. Even though you have killed the prophets and those that have that 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 I have sent to you. And he says to them, you know, that's what he says. I'm going to send you prophets, wise men and scribes. 
right? And you will kill them. You will crucify them. You will scourge them in your synagogues and you will persecute them from city to city. Have you read the book of Acts? That's exactly what they did. That upon you might come all the righteous blood shed on the earth from the blood of righteous, blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom he murdered between the temple and the altar. Basically, that's that's like saying from um, um, from uh, uh, let me give an example here from from uh, uh, from from George Washington to Joe Biden. That's that's all of American history, right? George Washington to, to, to Joe Biden. That's effectively what you're saying here from from Genesis to Revelation. Uh, for in the case of the Israelites from Genesis to Malachi, uh, when you when you describe this, because that's that that's the the history um, of of the history of the nation. So basically, all the righteous blood that's ever been shed on the earth, I am going to send you prophets and wise men and scribes, and you're going to kill them. And I'm going to do that so that when I come in judgment, all of the righteous blood ever shed on the earth will be found in you. Okay. Now, um, it's going to come on your head. Uh, let me jump over here to the, the King James for a second. We've got three different Bible translations coming up. We pointed this out yesterday. Um, it's another reason that I think the date of Revelation has to be early. Because you get into Revelation chapter 6, and you see the souls of them that were slain for the word of God, for the testimony that they that they held, and they crowd with a loud voice, oh, How long, O Lord, holy and true, Dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? Um, and then we go over to chapter 18 with the destruction of Babylon uh, down at the end of that chapter. Is it 18? Oh, there. We were just in that text yesterday. I think it's 24 that I want. Uh, let's start in 20, 18, 20. <clears throat> Rejoice over her, thou, thou heaven, and ye holy apostles and prophets, for God has avenged you on her. So Jesus says, going back here to the New King James for a second, I'm going to send you prophets. Rejoice, O holy apostles and prophets, wise men and scribes. You will kill them. You will scourge them, persecute them from city to city, that, 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 that on you, on Jerusalem, might come all the righteous blood that's shed on the earth. And so he says to them here in the book of Revelation, you need to rejoice, apostles and prophets, for God has avenged you on her. How long until you avenge us? Fall of Babylon. The, the holy apostles and prophets rejoice. And then in verse 24, and in her was found the blood and the prophets of the saints and all of them that were slain upon the earth. Well, go back here to what the new King James says. And he says, Jesus does that upon you on Jerusalem might come all the righteous blood shed upon the earth. Almost like the Bible's trying to explain itself to you. The fall of whatever you think is in, 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 in Revelation 18, and it's Babylon, I think it's Jerusalem, is right here as well. It, it's, it's the same, it's the same group of people, same language. Now, here's why I say think this is so poignant. He has just told them all of the righteous blood that's ever been shed, I'm going to bring it upon your head. I would have rather saved you, Jerusalem, but you are the one who kills the prophets. And sitting in the temple grounds, see, so back to my mind's eye here, I have Jesus pointing around to the city right now and saying, look, here's the temple. This temple should be God's house. This temple should belong to him. But see, not his house, 
but your house, no longer his. His glory has departed from it. This house belongs to him or to you now. What you have done with it belongs to him. Sorry, I'm in the, I, I messed up there. This now belongs to you. Your house is left to you desolate. And then in chapter 24, which I, I believe this statement here, that the temple is desolate, prompts a question from Jesus in, in the beginning of 24. As they're walking through the temple grounds, the disciples came up to show him the buildings of the temple. Hold on a second. Had Jesus never seen those before? Do we not meet him? The earliest account of him past his birth after he returns from Egypt. Is he not in the temple when his parents find him? Asking and answering questions of those who teach the law? It's not like he's never seen the temple before. His disciples come up to him and show him the temple. Why? Because he just said it's a desolate place. He just told them it's desolate. And, he, and the disciples, I think, are trying to convince him. And this is, again, may, this may just be Jonathan 101. But um, I, I think his disciples are trying to convince him he, he's wrong on this. This place is not desolate. This is Herod's temple. It's been 70 years in construction. This is not a desolate place, Jesus. This is the this is this is the seat of of God's worship. This is this is the this is you know to, well I was about to say this is Mecca, but that's kind of a that's probably not the best reference. But but that's what it is. I mean I mean this is the epitome. This is the place of worship of God. This is the Temple Mount. Look at this place. You just called it desolate. Do you not see all these things? One stone shall not be left upon another here, left here upon another. Not one stone is going to be left. Now, keep in mind specifically which disciples are there. He sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple. Mount of Olives is just outside the city. Somebody who maybe has been in the Holy Lands. Can you see the Temple Mount from the from the Mount of Olives? I suspect you can. The first name in that list is Peter. The first name in that list is Peter. The list of people who came to him and said, when is this going to happen? I know that's a long, circuitous route to get you back to 1 Peter. I just want to tell you what's in my mind when I read this. When I read Peter saying it is, or you are rather, or he is rather, a living stone. In my mind, I go back to that Olivet, Olivet Discourse, as some people call it. Peter is the first name on that list. 
asking Jesus after he has just heard Jesus call the temple a desolate place and having shown Jesus the temple grounds. And again, just making it up in my brain, Jonathan 101, of all of the, the apostles, which one do you think would most likely be trying to correct Jesus? Jesus says the house of Jerusalem is desolate. The very next verse, or I guess skip a verse, you know, the very the very next scene, the disciples are walking Jesus through the temple grounds and showing him the buildings, which he's already seen. He's a Jew. He grew up there. He knows he was there as a child. He's seen the temple. It's not like he needs a tour. He knows it. And they're showing him the temple grounds. Who do you think was the ringleader in that? Could have been any of my guests. Maybe it's the Sons of Thunder. But in my brain, I tell you who's the ringleader of that. Peter. Again, I'm making that up. But in my mind, I'm just telling you how I'm thinking here. In my mind, it's Peter. And in my mind, again, when we get to the Mount of Olives, guess who's asking the question? When, wait, Lord, when's this going to happen? When's, when, when is the end of the age coming? When, when is the end of our people coming? In my mind, it's Peter. Again, could be wrong. So also then, when I read this phrase, he's a living stone. And instead of being torn down, based upon this living stone, we are being built up. That's what I see. I see Peter looking back to that Olivet Discourse, 30 years from 30 years removed from it. Almost 40. Knowing that that prophecy is about to come true. And as opposed to the dead stones of Israel, to the dead stones of that desolate temple, what you have come to is a living stone. Instead of a house that's desolate, as the Hebrews writer would say, hey, there's the book of Hebrews again as we study First Peter. As the book of Hebrews says, that which is old and is decaying is ready to vanish. You have come to a living stone and are being built up into a spiritual house. So that's the contrast I see when I read verse 4. My mind goes back to Matthew 24 and the Jewish connection to the temple. In their, their, in their mind's eye, this is the Holy of Holies. I mean, it, literally, the Holy of Holies is there. But this, this is, I'm looking for an expression. Every expression pales in comparison to the reality. It's not, it's, not like a, it's not just the Holy of Holies, but it is the Holy of Holies. Whatever that is, it, it is... It is, it, is, it is the focal point of everything that is the worship of Jehovah. It's everything. and it has been since, since you know, the, the tabernacle finally made it to Jerusalem in the time of David. That's what it's been from that point forward. And always has been. Except it's not. What is now the focal point of, of the worship of Jehovah 
is the living stone. Rejected by men. Yes, he was. Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 2, you took him by wicked hands, by the predetermined counsel of God. Rejected by men, but of God chosen and precious. Chosen. Again, the sermon of Acts 2. By the predeterminate counsel of God, you did this. It's according to the foreknowledge of God. See the connection again? You are the elect, according to the foreknowledge of God. The, prop, the Spirit prophesied of this. This is all according to God's plan. Chosen, and he is precious. Same, same language we just found earlier in back in chapter 1. Uh, by the, um, uh, uh, um, by the uh, you have been ransomed by the precious blood of Jesus, known before the foundation of the world. He is, again, chosen and precious. And look at the connection then. Look at the, the, the emphatic structure here. You yourselves, you yourselves, like living stones. He is a living stone, but really the living stone. And you are like him. You are a living stone. You're standing in the true grace of God. You're not standing in, in, in some thing that is old and decaying and ready to vanish away. You're standing in the true uh, sort, uh, grace of God. And so just as the stone that you have followed is living, you then also have life within you. You are a living stone. And you are in the process of being built up as a spiritual house. Okay? Um, an interesting phrase. Um, I, I, if, if I was going to get very specific about it, I would tie it back to some of the things we talked about yesterday. I believe it was yesterday, wasn't it? It had to be yesterday because today, no, today's Wednesday, so I guess it could have been Monday. It was this week. It was either, either yesterday or, or, or on Monday. I can't remember now, but we spent some time looking at Daniel, Daniel 7. Uh, I think that was probably yesterday. Uh, Daniel 7 uh, and, the, and the, the, the process, the concept of receiving the kingdom. Um, in, in in Hebrews chapter twelve, I think this could be a reference to that, um, or an allusion to that to that concept of the of the maturation of the kingdom. Uh, that that that's that's there uh, in Ephesians chapter four as well. The spiritual gifts are given till we all come into the unity of the faith, and then we are no more children being tossed about to and fro. Okay, I think that that could be a part of that that this language as well that this spiritual house. Is still growing into itself, growing into maturity, um, and and that day is coming. Um, I think that could be a reference here. Probably is would be my guess, or this could just be a statement about their spiritual growth and their spiritual development. I guess that on an individual level, um, I suppose that's that's also possible. Um, I don't think so because I, I believe what he's talking about here, uh, especially. Well, let's just look at this, this phrase as a whole. You are being built as a spiritual house to, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. The question would be, are they not already doing that? Are they not already a spiritual house? Well, if you just want to use that language, yes. 
1 Timothy chapter 3, Paul refers to the church as the house of God. Is that house physical or spiritual? Well, it's not physical. He's not talking here about a building or somebody's actual house. He's talking about the, about the assembly, the saints, the church. And he refers to it as the house of God. So yeah, the house already exists. Okay. Are they not already a holy priesthood? Sure they are. They are already a holy priesthood. Do they not offer up, already offer up spiritual sacrifices? Well, have you read the book of Revelation? Uh, exactly. The, the, the prayers of the saints go up as, as, as incense before the Lord. They're already offering spiritual sacrifices inside of that kingdom, inside of that temple, inside of that house. They're already doing it. So what's he talking about? Well, probably the process of maturation, Ephesians chapter 4 that we just referenced. And so I think this is, this is talking not about an individual spiritual growth, but rather the maturation of the kingdom um, as, as, it's, as it's growing up and, and the, 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 the mystery of which Paul speaks re, uh, often is, is still in the process of, of being completed, of the unification and the declaration of the unification of Jew and Gentile in the kingdom. So I think the imagery here is not so much a statement of reality as much as it is a statement of the perception of reality. Because it, what's going on is that obviously the church, the, the time has come that judgment must begin at the house of God. There's another example, First Peter chapter 4. It could have stayed in the same book. Judgment's coming to the house of God. Okay. The, the, the immediate historical imagery would be that, particularly from a Jewish perspective, National Israel is resisting Rome, and it's having, a, 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 to a degree, a renaissance. It, it's flourishing in comparison to Jews in the spiritual Israel, inside the church. Inside the church, Judaism and the Jewish influence is shrinking, and it's dying. Outside of the church, Jewish influence nationally seems to be stable, and even for a time, as I said, some kind of renaissance of their own independence up from uh, out from underneath Roman control. And so if you're a Jewish Christian and you're looking at this, you it would appear that your influence in the church is waning and this is no longer for you. But Judaism seems to be growing and getting stronger. That would be the immediate appearance. And I believe that's what Peter's is is the, the play that Peter has going on here. In, in the image that he's trying to paint in the mind of his reader. Again, maybe a little bit of Jonathan 101, but that, that, that's, that's the, 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 the imagery that I see him trying to talk about here. You, particularly Jewish Christians, are not part of something that is diminishing and dying. No. You are actually the living stones, built upon the living stone. And you are actually part of a growing and expanding spiritual house. And you are the place where the true priesthood serves. You are the place where true sacrifices are being offered to God. Now that's going to be manifested. That's going to be declared shortly. But you need to understand that while you're doing that now, and it appears that you are secondary, that you are lesser than maybe even what you left, you need to understand that's not true. Just as it is also true that even though they rejected Jesus, in the sight of God, he was chosen and precious. So 
it may look, again, particularly from a Jewish, first century Jewish perspective, it may look like you have been rejected by men, but the reality is, in the sight of God, you are chosen and precious. You yourselves, likewise, like living stones. You are just like that. You're just, as he was a, as he is the living stone, you are following in that same path. And we have this word that I keep going back to this, this concept of chosen and precious. You Obviously, we just showed you that back up here in verse 19, that he was uh, um, uh, precious, the precious blood of Christ. He was foreknown. All of that concept is, is, is continuing to be brought forward by Peter. You, or, or Jesus, is part of prophecy. The salvation that was that he brought is part of prophecy. The prophets, the angels, and the spirit all testified to that of his suffering and his glories, and you are exactly part of that same process. You are still according to, you are elect, chosen, according to the foreknowledge of God. So just as he was rejected, so you, it appears, are being rejected. But just as he is to be glorified, so you, this spiritual house, this holy priesthood, and the sacrifices that you offer are acceptable to God, and 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 all of the all of the trappings and all of the the surroundings to, the testifying to the contrary of that do not nullify the fact that this is what you are. You are the living spiritual house and the true holy priesthood of God. That's why he comes back to this back in verse number nine. He was chosen and precious. Verse 9, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of his own possession. So just as the living stone was that, so were you. Now, I do, you do want you to notice this state, this is a statement of, of reality, okay? Not someday you will be this, but you are a royal priesthood and a holy nation, okay? Um, so, and so that's why I say this is this is imagery of, of of a growing kingdom, a growing temple, a thriving living temple, in contrast to the desolate temple of Judaism. It's dying, even though it doesn't appear to be. It's dying. You're growing. Your kingdom, the part that you think that you're a part of, is continuing to grow and to thrive. And one day it's going to be shown quite clearly, quite emphatically that the true people of God are in this temple as opposed to being in the other temple. All you're doing is walking down. You are, you are emulating the steps of Jesus. He was a living stone, the living stone. Men rejected him, but God did not. And this was according to prophecy, for it stands in Scripture. It stands in Scripture. Behold, he says, This has been happening to me all week, and I and, and by 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 noon or so, my voice is perfectly clear, and I'm not having any problems. Just just this this week so far, I, I am having a raspy voice first thing in the morning. Give me about thirty minutes after I go off the air, and this thing will clear up and it'll be fine the rest of the day. But it has been driving me nuts this week. Um, let me give me a second here and grab one of my handy dandy um, fisherman's friends. Cough drops, because that always seems to help me out quite a bit. Um, but he says here in verse number six, it stands in Scripture. So the appeal again is back is back to Scripture. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, 
a cornerstone chosen and precious. Once again, bringing those words down, right? Chosen and precious. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Okay? Um, quotation there, you can bring it up for you so you can see it. Isaiah 28, verse 16. Quotation from Isaiah, very poignant. I'm, I'm, obviously, this point here is important. Um, Jesus Christ is the, is, is the cornerstone. He's going to be the foundation of it all. Um, he, is, he is that individual. Um, it's been laid in Zion, Isaiah chapter 2, out of Zion shall go forth the law. That's, the, the, that's where the place where the kingdom would be established. Obviously, Acts chapter 2 is the fulfillment of that. So in Jerusalem, in Zion, I'm going to lay a stone. That stone is the foundation of the new covenant. That stone is the foundation of the new the kingdom, the church, and so on. That's where I'm going to lay it. And that he is going to be the cornerstone. And he, just as Peter said up earlier, chosen and precious. As it stands in the scripture, this cornerstone is chosen and precious. Okay. This last part of the quotation, though, I believe is the, um, is, well, obviously when we talk about this, it, we're not wrong at all to stop and to focus on Jesus, right? I don't think that's the point. I think the point and the punch of this quotation is the last phrase. Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. I believe that's what's in doubt. Peter's writing to them again. This is the true grace of God in which you stand. Just as we have in the book of Hebrews. Don't turn back. You took the spoiling of your goods joyfully. Um, and the Hebrews writer says, you have not yet suffered under blood. I, I really think the the, um, uh, the 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 implication of that, the suggestion of that at least is, you have not yet suffered under blood, but you will. I believe that's the fulfillment of it. You're going to suffer under blood. It's coming. Okay? So I thought that, that's where he's going there. But you have right here in this statement, whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. You have not believed in vain. It may look like that. It may look like the people that you have left, your countrymen that you have left. It may look like they're succeeding and you're, and you're, and you're not, but you need to understand. Prophecy about the chief cornerstone is that anyone who believes in him will be vindicated. They will not be put to shame. It's, I think it's interesting here that in most of what Peter says in verse Peter, it's not as much a defense of the Christ as it is a defense of Christians. Now, there is some of that. I mean, the, the, there, there is a defense here that, you know, the, the, the living stone was in the sight of God chosen and precious, and that his blood is, you know, all those verses we just highlighted, verse 9, the precious blood of Christ. But unlike, say, um, Ephesians and maybe Colossians as well, where there is a defense of Christ, of his deity, particularly in Colossians, that, that in, in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead and those kind of things. Uh, Colossians 1, he upholds all things by the power of his word, even in the book of Hebrews, that Jesus is greater than the angels and greater than Moses, chapters 1, 2, and well, first call it the first four chapters of Hebrews. Uh, and, and, the, and the priesthood of Jesus is after the order of Melchizedek, not after the not after the um, um, uh, the priesthood priesthood of Aaron, and so therefore a higher and better priesthood. And the book of Hebrews is really a direct a defense of Jesus, um, and so Ephesians and Colossians to, to a degree as well. This one is not as direct to me. Uh, this one seems to be more along the lines of you, 
he's chosen and precious. That's exactly what the prophets said he was. And, and then so are you. You are chosen, and you are chosen as a people of his own possession. In other words, precious, chosen and precious. There seems to be a, 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 an emphasis from Peter to connect the saint to the Savior. He is this. You are too. And that seems to be the connection to me as, as I read through this. And that's why I say this last phrase is really um, is really the, um, the punch of, of the quotation. You will not be put to shame. So the, the cry of the book of Revelation, how long until you avenge us? No, no, you need to know this. Your, your vindication is coming. The life that you have lived, you know, you souls underneath the altar who have given your given your life for the testimony of the of, of the Lord that you bore. Don't worry, it's all worth it. You will not be put to shame. I don't care about the grievous trials you're going through. I don't care about the fiery trial that's hit hit you and is being accomplished in your brethren all over the world. It looks like things have fallen apart for the church. Don't worry about it. It's not true, and it's not true, and we know it's not true because the prophets said so. So again, this, this would have had a huge impact to the Jewish mind because these people are not concerned that God is not real. They're not concerned that somehow Isaiah is, you know, is a false prophet of some kind. They know Isaiah's right. They trust the words of Isaiah. And I believe they trust that in Zion, they have found the chief and precious stone in Jesus. I think they know that. Here's what I think is the issue. They're concerned about the genuineness of their faith, the power of it. Just know that if you follow him, you will not be put to shame. Now, see, to me, I, I'm going to sermonize here for a little bit. I think we do ourselves a lot of damage. when we rush to make application of these verses into the 21st century to our own lives directly. Because I understand this book, and I believe, I believe it to be the proper understanding. Great tribulations on the, on the verge of coming. Fiery trials come upon them. All these events are just beginning to unfold. There's a lot of concern, a lot of doubt, as I just talked about, right? With all this coming in play. And what Peter does is he takes that great tribulation, that great tribulation that Jesus said would be greater than any other tribulation that would come upon the people of God and that ever had come upon, had, had ever happened, or would ever happen again. The worst possible time in terms of tribulation to be a Christian. The absolute worst possible time in all of human history to be a follower of God. And that time was transpiring right as this book was written. See, for me at least, leaving this in the first century, 
and understanding the historical context of this, I have great confidence in knowing something because Jesus promised it. That the tribulation that was accomplished within the lifespan of the generation that was standing there of the Peter, Andrew, James, and John that were standing on the Mount of Olives with Jesus in Mark 13. That generation went through the greatest tribulation. It is to that generation that Peter is now writing this book. That generation went through it. And during that period of time, Peter would says, says the righteous were scarcely saved, but they were saved. Those who held faith during the greatest tribulation that, a, that the saints of God would ever know, those who held faith were validated and they were vindicated. They came out the other side, Revelation chapter 7, having washed their ro ro robes white in the blood of the Lamb. Now, make application to that. What about me? It's an argument from the greater to the lesser. Since their tribulation of necessity is greater than mine will ever be, and they got through it, what's that mean for you and me? I already have evidence that the gates of hell cannot prevail against the church. In its, if you will, in its dying breath, not literally dying, but in its dying breath, Satan through, read the book of Revelation, Satan through everything he had at the church, moved nations against it, went out to deceive the nations, mustered all the forces he could to go and kill the church. And these people, reading First Peter, didn't falter. They didn't fail. Coming out the other side was the remnant of the Jews who were chosen by a remnant chosen by grace. Romans Romans chapter nine. Revelation portrays them as one hundred and forty-four thousand, twelve thousand out of each tribe. They survived, and an innumerable, innumerable multitude of Gentiles survived. If they did, then I know I can. Not just because the scripture says it, although that's enough, but because we've already seen it. The fact that we stand here today as children of God in the same church, in the same kingdom, is testimony that their life, their testimony, if you will, made it through. No one who believes in him will be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, well, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. A stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. It may look like those who have chosen to go a different path. Maybe those of your countrymen. Maybe those saints who uh, are Jewish saints who, who did believe at a time, but now have given up their faith, as the book of Hebrews talks about. It may appear that they've made the right choice. Peter's argument is no. The honor is for you.
Okay, that that glory that's going to be revealed in 1 Peter 5. It's an honor for you. For them, it's a stumbling block. They have actually failed. They have stumbled. They have fallen. There's no hope for them. You, on the other hand, if you hold, if you hold true to your faith, the honor is for you. It's another reason I think this, um, this, um, um, the glory that's to be revealed in chapter five. We talked about uh, this, this um, that the testing of your faith may be found to praise and glory. And there's that that word again, honor. The honor is unto you who believe at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So I don't think this is talking, this is another reason, I don't think this is talking about the end of the world. I believe the point he is making here to them is you're going to see this. You're going to witness this. And it's the same thing back in Romans, Romans chapter 8. The suffering of this present time is not to be compared with the glory that's going to come. Okay, that's true of, of heaven. I mean, there is there is a final day when, obviously, the, the, the saints go to be with God and, and, and those who aren't saints, you know, are, 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 are removed from the presence of the Father, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. That day is coming, absolutely. I believe he's talking here about a present day vindication, just as the souls underneath the altar. Those who do not believe would be countrymen that, that were alive at that time. I don't think he's talking here about the Gentiles. I mean, it's obviously true of Gentiles, but I don't think he's what he's talking about. It is those who came from Zion. Some of them believed, some did not. The honor is for you who believe. Those who did not, the builders have rejected that which became the chief cornerstone. Okay, I talked about this briefly yesterday. Who are the builders? Well, if, again, if you're a Jew, who are the builders? The, the builders are going to be the, the, the religious leaders, the, the infrastructure of Judaism. That's, that's who the builders are. Who built the old temple? Well, obviously, actual physical people built it, but in terms of building up its prominence, building up all the trappings that are around it, the, the, the religious elite, the, 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 the high priest, the, the Pharisees and the rabbis and, 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 and the, the lawyers, and, and all of that was a part of Old Testament uh, or, of, of, well, of, of, of a national Jewish structure and worship. Those are the very ones that rejected him. Uh, the gospel accounts say that, you know, he came unto his own, but his, his own did not receive him. But it also says it was the common people that gladly received him. James echoes the same thing. God has chosen the poor of this world, rich in faith, and heirs of the kingdom of God. Okay? Kingdom of heaven, I think James says. The, the builders, those who appear to have honor, rejected him. In so doing, they, they stumbled as they were destined to do. So again, while it may look like they are the winners, it's not true. He's chosen and precious. If you believe in him, you will be vindicated. Honor is coming, and I believe they were going to see that honor in their lifetimes. There was going to come a point in time when the builders were put to shame, and that was just a few years away. And when, that, when, when Jesus comes in judgment of them and puts them to shame, 
the honor is going to transfer to you. As Daniel 7 says, you're going to see the greatness of a kingdom when it's stripped from the, from the little horn. You're going to get it. You're going to live to see this honor. Now, is it true in an eternal sense? Absolutely. And so if somebody teaches this as if this is at the end of time, the end of the world, again, I'm not going to argue with you. I'm going to, I'm going to sit there and nod my head and say amen, because that everything you would say about that would absolutely be biblically true. Well, that's not, it's, not, it's not as if I'm going to break fellowship somebody over this matter. But I personally believe Peter is writing a letter to these individuals saying, you must stand firm. You, you have made the right choice. You are in the true grace of God. If you will just hold on through the fiery trial, after you have suffered a little while, chapter 5 says, right? Let's just let's end this, let's end this lesson just doing that, going to chapter 5, where Peter says to him, humble yourself, be sober, be watchful, resist the devil, resist him, firm in faith, stand firm, knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. It's not, it's not just on you, this is going on everywhere. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, okay, you stand in the true grace of God. That's what he says back in chapter five, the God of all grace, okay? This is done according to his foreknowledge, Grace and peace be multiplied unto you. Um, uh, th- th- this this God of grace that that it, it, he's going to grant you what? Let's go back down here to chapter five real fast. Who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ, according to His foreknowledge? We just scrolled up and looked at that. According to His foreknowledge, it is imperishable, does not fade away. Has called you to this eternal glory in Christ, the God of all grace. After you have suffered a little while will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you to him be the dominion forever and ever. He hasn't lost, and after you have suffered a little while, his grace will bring you glory, and his dominion will be proclaimed. I believe this is a first century thing. These saints were going to live to see the honor of what it meant to believe in Jesus Christ. You've made the right choice. So let's stop there, and we will pick up, Lord willing, tomorrow morning in verse uh, number 9 of First Peter chapter 2. Uh, as always, I have greatly enjoyed this time with you in the study. Appreciate my dad coming on during the first hour. Uh, if you would, again, just keep my mom in your prayers. We would appreciate that as a family, and I know both my mom and dad would as well. Um, and don't forget, we have Beth Brewer coming up at 2 o'clock for another episode of The Mindful Soul. So that being said... I will sign off for the day, and we will see you back here, Lord willing, at least for From the Deep End, tomorrow morning at uh, 8 a.m. And uh, until then, it's my prayer. You'll go out and make your day a great one for God. Have a good day, everybody.